Today's video was recorded on October 25th, 2022. In today's lesson, we'll be looking at the divine attributes. So in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God reveals his character to Moses. These two verses are repeated so often throughout the Old Testament, like Jonah 4, verse 2, that scholars consider them to be creed-like for the ancient Israelites, and they're used to remind them about the type of God that they're in covenant relationship with. And what we'll see in this lesson, though, is that we don't have the English words to convey the depth of meaning that the Hebrew words carry. Now, because of this, make sure you download the handout of definitions that I provided in the comment section below. Those will help you understand the fullness of the original Hebrew words. And if it weren't for the character of God, humanity would not be able to sustain a continuous relationship with him. So these two verses in Exodus provide for us the foundation of his character and the confidence to walk forthrightly with God in the world. Now, Fig Tree Ministries can be found on YouTube and in podcast version on Apple Podcast and Spotify. So if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you click on that subscribe button below. And we also appreciate any comments or questions or general feedback in the comments section below the video. Any feedback from our audience helps to boost our video visibility on YouTube, and that definitely helps us with our mission of expanding biblical education. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would love it if you took just a few moments to give us a star rating and leave a comment. We love to hear from you, and again, your engagement helps us broaden the base of our listening audience. So we hope you enjoy this lesson on the divine attributes and how they help to encourage our faith by understanding the character of God. So the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the divine attributes. It's the character of God, and they're really two of the most important verses in the Bible, because we learn about the character of God. And this is a moment in time in the book of Exodus when we don't know that yet. Moses is learning who God is. I mean, you're probably four to five months out from the, the Passover event that set them free. So we'll see tonight that Moses wants to learn more about God. And then God, it's a, it's a moment of revelation where he declares his name. And what we get are these divine attributes. This week, we'll, look, we'll cover a couple of them. We'll go to next week because there's some things. It's just too much to do at one time. Very important, though, that we understand this. This, this really sets the tone, the story, for the rest of the Bible. So this is in uh, the tw number 26 in our Exodus study. I'm going to use the same picture this week as I did last time, the Rembrandt. This is Moses smashing the tablets of the law. This time, though, I just pulled the picture closer a little bit, so I just kind of zoomed it in. But it's in Exodus 33 and 34. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, we're just going to be reading a few verses in Exodus 33, then look at the two verses in Exodus 34. We'll talk about some of the, the definitions of the words we're seeing in English. So I actually I sent out two documents. The one is the class handout. The other one is a list of definitions, and this becomes really important because 
we have the attributes are given to us, and we're reading them in English to learn about the character of God. But ultimately, the English is it's lacking in its ability to fully capture what the Hebrew can convey. And if you remember, we talked one time about in English, there's like 176,000 words in English. Well, in biblical Hebrew, there's like six to 7,000. It's not many. And these words, they do heavy lifting. They cover a lot of ground in their meaning. And if we miss that, then we miss something deeper about the character of God. So that's why I sent you those definitions. If you can reflect on those, you'll see they take us just a little bit deeper than often our English does. So we're not going to go through them all tonight, but we'll look at just two of them. And then next week, we'll look at the ones for sin, because there's three distinct words for sin. But I wanted you to have the definitions because, well, you'll see tonight, these are not easy words to translate into English that conveys the fullness of what the Hebrew is. So, okay, um, we're going to do a little bit of a review of what we talked about a few weeks ago. Last week was covenant. Of course, that comes into play because we're in the midst of covenant context. Uh, we'll do a, a quick review. And one of the things that we talked about was the structure of Exodus chapters 25 to 40. Those are the final 15 chapters of Exodus. And inside those chapters is there's a structure to the text, and it's what we call chiastic structure. And the chiastic structure, what it does is, and this is number one on your sheet, is it provides a, it's like an aid so that the author divinely inspired, structuring the text to say, here's the most important point, the turning point of all of this. So where do I want you to focus? Right here is the most important area. And so the chiastic structure looks something like this, and it's kind of small on your screen. We saw this a few weeks ago. It's based off that letter chi, the Greek letter chi, which is an X. And so it has a shape of a one half of an X, like an arrow. And then, so what's on the top of the arrow then matches what's on the bottom. And so you get something like this, where the presence of God matches at the top, matches the presence of God at the bottom. God gives the instructions first, then Moses gives the instructions later. God gives the command for the Sabbath, then Moses gives the command for the Sabbath. And it all goes to this point that's going to turn right here. And if we, we want to go in and focus on that point, so if we get rid of those lines and we zoom in a little bit, what we see are these two incidents of the golden calf followed by God's divine attributes, God's character. So what we're going to do is two weeks talking about the divine attributes. And then we're going to go back to the golden calf, because I think it's going to tell us something even about our walk with God. We're going to learn about the, the character of God, which is important. And then we'll learn about, well, what about our walk with God? And how does the golden calf incident is reflected in our own walk as Christians, as we're walking with God? So that's how the structure itself points us to these two events. It says, hey, Pay attention right here. 
This is going to be the most important thing. And so that's what we're going to do. Oh, by the way, you have the golden calf. We're going to look at the attributes. And what follows those attributes is a restoration of the covenant. God says, okay, I'm going to do this again. We set up the covenant again. Now, this time, the, the Israelites are all hands on deck, and they build the tabernacle. Of course, the presence of God dwells with them. But it's the restoration of the covenant. And by the way, it's forgiveness, then the restoration of the covenant. So that's what we'll do over the next couple of weeks. And hopefully, I think, I think you'll see it gives you a, if, if we can go deeper, it gives you a, a glimpse of the character of God that will, I don't know, maybe it makes, sometimes we, there's something that came about in the second century, second, uh, yeah, second century, that the God of the Old Testament is angry and violent and all of that. And this is going to fly in the face of that. And of course, that, that didn't hold. Sometimes that still persists today. People have a, a, a sense that the God in the Old Testament is the God of law, and if you get to the New Testament, it's God of love. Well, that's not what the God's character is going to say. So we have to pay attention to what's going on here. All right, so we'll look at number two on your handout. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's not number two. Sorry. We haven't even... haven't even finished part one. Okay, so God's character is revealed. We get the reestablishment of the covenant. And one of the things we have to recognize is that that reestablishment of the covenant is due only to God's character. That's what makes it important. The entire relationship between God and Israel, and of course, we could say God and humanity, we could say God and us, it's based on God's character. What type of God are we following? It's obviously not based on our ability to maintain a covenant relationship. So I put a uh, quote on your sheet. So it's, the, it's uh, right before we get to number two. It's a quote from a gentleman named Donald Gowan. And the book is called Theology in Exodus. And Gowan is doing here what is called biblical theology. And that's not to be confused with systematic theology. Systematic theology is what we're used to in the West. Biblical, uh, biblical theology, though, it's, it's very simple in that you go to Exodus and you say, what does Exodus say? What does it tell us about God? Without trying to systematically a coherent truth statement out. That's systematic theology. Systematic theology tries to de de develop a statement about God, the truest statement that you can, by systematically putting together things. And biblical theology says, no, let's just read what the Bible says. What does it tell us? So we go there and it says, God is X. Okay, there we go. We're going to learn about God just by reading Exodus and not doing systematic theology. But this is what he says about the relationship. So uh, on your handout, if they, which is Israel, if they are to have any future with God, it will have to depend on patience and forgiveness. And if you think about that, that's even our relationship with God as well. 
if we're to have, if humanity is going to have any relationship with God, it depends on God's patience and God's forgiveness and the grace of God that says even when we stumble, even when we make messes in, the, in our lives or in the world, God is willing to forgive us. And if it weren't for that, the whole thing would be, wouldn't work out, right? Because we are, unfortunately, we're always in a, in a little bit of a mess here or there. So, and then he says, so he says, let me just say that again. If, is, if they are to have any future with God, it will have to depend on patience and forgiveness. And then he says, so the basic pattern of Scripture's story is presented here for the first time. This is what we base our relationship with Jesus on, the good news. The good news is that it's through the faith in Jesus that, and by God's grace that we can enter a relationship with him, even though we have sins of our past. We get forgiveness. Then, when we're in the relationship with God, even though we have sins of the present, God is willing to forgive us and is patient with us. And he wants us to grow. There's no doubt in that. But this is the pattern of Scripture, and we see it for the very first time right here in the book of Exodus. Now, there is patience, there is forgiveness, but God is just. So there's going to be a day when all of humanity's actions are to be judged. God will not be mocked. You can't say, hey, God, I want to enter a relationship, covenant relationship with you so I can receive all of the covenant protection so that I can get blessings, but then I want to do whatever I want. That's, a, that's mocking God. God won't be mocked. So you can't be in that relationship thinking, I'll get what's mine out of it, but I'll go over here and do whatever I want. That's what Jeremiah's complaint about the temple authorities. You come here and you say, the temple, the temple, the temple, like you can do whatever you want. And then you go over here on the other side and you sin. God's not going to put up with it. So this is, I think, the model for what scripture is showing us about a relationship with God. Okay. Number two, finally, number two, we're going to learn, and Moses is learning about God's character, his nature. And so, if we think about the story of Exodus, now we did this um, back in week six of this Exodus study. Now, by the way, that was way back in February, so it seems like ages ago that we started this whole thing. But in uh, part six, we looked at the idea when God is first calling Moses and Moses says, what's your name, right? I want to know your name. What am I going to tell them when they say, who's, who's this God? What's the God's name? Now, we noted in that lesson that name is much more than, how do I address you? That's not what he's asking. Name has to do with your nature has to do with your function. God wants to know, or I'm sorry, Moses wants to know, what kind of God are you? That's name. Just like Jesus' name is God's salvation. That's his function. It's not just how do we address him. And the funny thing is, then, so it was Exodus 3, 13 and 14, God responds, and he gives a non-answer answer which is a little bit strange. He says, I will be what I will be. And when you look at that, it's really actually quite amazing. He's a God of an open-ended future. We're going to walk together into the future. 
but your actions in this relationship are part of it. It makes a difference, right? I'm not a static god. The gods of Egypt would have a function, and then you would call on them for that particular function. And often, if you knew their name, you put it in an incantation. And then the god has to act. Well, god's like, that's not me. You can't do that to me. So I give you a non-answer. I will be what I will be. If you fail, if you're sinning, well, then I might not be the god that you want me to be. So you can see that he doesn't know a lot about God. From this point forward, Moses knows God only by his actions. And those actions are pretty awesome, right? He's, he's a God who redeems. We learned that uh, in the beginning. He's redeeming Israel. He's a God of uh, protection. We see the battle between Pharaoh. Um, it's a, all about power. We see the power of God in nature and the ten plagues and the dividing, dividing of the Red Sea. So he knows about God's power, but he doesn't know about God's character. So that's what we're going to be learning tonight, which is a little bit different. So we're further on in the story, about three months after, maybe four months after that. Okay, so if you fast forward now, out of Egypt, and now we're at uh, Exodus 33, and what Moses is going to say is, look, you know who I am, you know about me, but I need to know more about you. Tell me about this God that we're following. And if you turn to Exodus 33, verse 18, you will see then that Moses asks a very particular question. Now, this is from the, the New Heart English Bible that I pulled this one from. Not that it shouldn't be any different. This is a fairly easy uh, sentence. So, Moses says, please show me your glory. Now, what's interesting about this is he's asking to see God's glory, and glory in the ancient world is shining power. It's power. The word for glory also means heavy. There's a heaviness, a weightiness to God when you know before whom you stand. There's a weightiness to that relationship. And so, Moses is asking to see God's shining power, right? That's, and in, in a way, that's what we want, right? Don't we? We want to have a powerful God. In that ancient world, everybody wanted a powerful God. In fact, today, everybody wants a powerful God. Whose God is more powerful? People from the ancient world, even till today, are still looking for that. What they're not necessarily looking for is a God of love and mercy. That's a little different. So he says, let me see your glory. And then you have to look at the very next verse because there's an interesting response by God. So look at now verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 19. And God says, he said, that's God, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And the interesting thing is, he says, when asking for glory, God says, I'm going to pass my goodness before you. Where does God's power lie? In his goodness. That's what's going to pass before you. So what we can pull out of this, or what we can consider out of this, is that God's essence 
his goodness. But what is goodness? How do we understand goodness? What does that mean? And I think, let's go, um, yeah, let me go here. So it's, just, it's an interesting response. All of my goodness is going to pass before you. And I think what we can do here is that because the idea of God's goodness is found in the same context as his, the proclamation of his character, of his nature, that those two are linked. We want to look to God's character to understand what does he mean by goodness. And if you think about this, if God is goodness and we are made in the image of God, then what we want to know is how do we manifest goodness in the world? What does that look like on a practical level? And this is where we go. We're going to go right back to the character of God and then reflect that character. Part of our role is to reflect that character, to be Christ-like, reflected into the world. And so what I think is if you want to get a better grasp on goodness, let's look at those character attributes. We go to what follows, right? So at the bottom of page one, that when we think about, well, what, what does it mean, God's goodness? Or what does it mean that I would reflect God's goodness? And so this is where we get all of the attributes of God that are going to show up. Now, we'll look at those attributes in a minute. But it's God is compassionate. God is gracious. He's slow to anger. Aren't we supposed to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger? He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. He maintains covenant faithfulness. He's forgiving. And all of these things, all of these things manifest goodness in the world. And I think the way I think about it is. If you had to define goodness, it's the perfect combination of all of these at any moment in time. And when God deals with somebody, he deals with them in goodness, meaning he'll have the right amount of compassion, the right amount of, of truth, the right amount of forgiveness. Oh, by the way, though, he's just. And if you think about just with your own kids, this is how a parent, if you're, if you're trying to strive towards being the ideal parent, this is what you have to do. You have to have compassion, but at the same time, you have to have justice. And it's finding that balance. It's the perfect balance of all of these. And God knows how to do it perfectly for every situation, for every human being. And so I think we can even look to this to understand what does that mean, God's goodness, and then how would we reflect goodness into the world? Because, you know, we're always. We can be compassionate, but we're usually too compassionate. And then we can be judgmental and when we're too judgmental. And, uh, you know, we just have a hard time getting all of that in balance. So I think, just think about this, and I wanted to present it to say, what does God's good, if he's going to have his goodness go before us, what does that mean, goodness? And I think we look right here to these divine attributes. So just a thought, and I wanted to have you notice his response, because Moses asked for glory. God says, I'll show you my goodness. And this is, it's a, it's a powerful thing that God's doing here. So, okay, let's then, what are the divine attributes? We're going to go look a little bit here, and I want to read the text and then talk a little bit about a few of them. And then next week, we'll have to come back and finish up some on the sin part. So 
if you would, look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7. By the way, before I move on, Exodus 33, 34, starting in 32, that's the golden calf, then 33 and 34, it is loaded with amazing details. It's also very difficult, even for scholars, to put together exactly what's going on. There are a number of different explanations that scholars will serve, for that, serve up for that. There's a lot happening, and I, what, what I don't want to do is get bogged down too much in the weeds. There's some great commentaries out there that would help you sort through some of that and give you some thoughts that at least the way scholars look at it, it's very interesting when you can dig into the details, but it just takes a lot of digging. It's a, it's a lot of heavy lifting, and tonight I just want to get to these attributes. So, so this is, these are the two verses, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And this is where God's going to, as he says, he passes by, that's all of his goodness, and he proclaims. So the Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, though. He's going to hold people accountable. And he will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the children and upon the children's children up into the third and fourth generation. Now, we'll deal with that verse next week. But these are the two verses, right? And then you have to say, and by the way, I chose the New Heart English Bible specifically because I think to convey some of the Hebrew in the best English that we can do. They do a good job. This one happens to do a particularly good job. Now, you can see, you can see immediately a tension here, yes? The tension, God's merciful, God's patient, God's forgiving, uh, but he's also just. And humanity, because God is just, then injustices must be made right. And humanity must be held accountable. So there will be a day of judgment. And there will be justice. So there's, there's a huge tension between God's character. And I think, again, if you think about children, that's how you have to be as a parent, right? Merciful and gracious and slow to anger and in truth. But at the same time, if you let your kid get away with anything, they'll, they'll atrophy and fall apart. Like they need, a, uh, they need boundaries. And discipline, or I'm sorry, judgment is a is a type of boundary that you're putting up. So, all right. Now, what I want to do is walk through a couple of the things here. First of all, the Lord, the Lord, he repeats his name, the Lord, the Lord. And what's interesting about the Bible is anytime a name is repeated, it's like, well, I'm going to get your attention, right? There's a, there's a, there's an element of importance here. Abraham, Abraham. That's when God calls Abraham. Moses, Moses, when he calls Moses. Samuel, Samuel. So, Every time, even Saul, right? When, when Saul is on the Damascus road, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you hear your name called twice by God, look out, there's something coming. And so you see, and this is repeated, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful, there's our first one, merciful and gracious, gracious is our second one, slow to anger, abundant, a great amount of loving kindness, we'll talk about that one, and truth. 
Now, some of your Bibles don't say truth, but that's the Hebrew word, truth. He's keeping loving kindness. So there's the loving kindness again for thousands. He's forgiving. And what's very interesting about this is, we'll do this next week, forgiving. What's he forgiving of? Just sin? No. The Hebrew uses three different words that are all descriptive of different variables about sin. The Hebrew Bible doesn't just say one word for sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's like they're including every single one that you could possibly do. And we'll look at those next week about what does that mean, iniquity? How the, the Hebrew describes it. It's so much, uh, it's so much richer. Transgression. What are we transgressing? And then sin. Don't we use sin for all of that? And the, and the answer is no. So we'll look at those because there's nothing out of the bounds that God can't forgive. And it's like using the three Hebrew words conveys that idea. So, but then God says, ah, but by no means am I clearing the guilty, right? We have to have some kind of, uh, some kind of punishment. And so one of the things about these attributes they're not easy to translate, as I mentioned before, into English. So English doesn't always contain, uh, doesn't have the words that contain the meaning that the Hebrew does. That's, again, why I wanted you to have those definitions, so that if, you're, if you want to reflect on the word merciful, you got to go to the definition. You'll get something deeper. Or we'll look tonight at loving kindness. There's, there's elements to that that are deeper, and the same with the words about sin. So. You have those sheets, they're good to reflect on, and they'll help you go a little bit deeper about God's character. Okay, so what I want to do tonight is look at two of them. So on the back of your sheet, I have all the attributes listed. I actually forgot to put the second loving kindness in there, but it's in there once. Number four is all the attributes. And then we'll look at a couple of them just to give you a sense of um, the Hebrew. The first one I'll look at is mercy. So in this, in verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful Rahum. And the reason I put the, the uh, Hebrew up there is just so you know that these are different words. They carry different meanings that we're going to use. So the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious. So it's Rahum and Hanun, slow to anger. Abundant in loving kindness, that's Hesed, and then and in truth, Emmet. So this is the, the verse. Now, merciful, Rahum, what does that mean? Sometimes it gets, uh, it gets translated often merciful or compassionate. Maybe, I don't know what your, which version of the Bible you have, but I'll show you in a minute how one of the words, you have eight different versions and eight different ways that they translate it but merciful or compassionate. Now, the Hebrew is a word, rahum. And what's cool about that is that rahum has the sense of a deep love that's rooted in a natural bond. And the reason we know that is because the word rahum is the word for womb. And so this word, merciful, is more than merciful, it's the expression of a mother's love 
for a child that came from her own womb. That's how God looks at each of us. It's not just any child. And as, you know, as parents, you know that you, that your child is your child. And there's a, there's a bond and a mercy that comes out that will not come out for some other, for other children. And so God's merciful nature is like that for every one of us, right? How does a mother feel for a child that came from her own womb? It's that deep. And so one of the, on your um, handout number four, one scholar, he translates it womb pity because he wants to get, get that idea of the womb being in there. That's God's mercy. You can imagine, you know, when your child messes up, it's like, that's my child, though. As much as you're not happy about them messing up, the mercy that comes out is very deep. So I just wanted to show you that because it's a really cool. When you say compassion, now compassion, same thing. I mean, you get the same idea. But until you know that that word also means womb, you miss the part about how God feels towards us as he's watching us stumble and flail around as we're trying to figure things out here. So, okay, that's just one. Let me do one other one. And again, you can go and read these definitions. They may help you out. This one is, I'm going to call it covenant faithfulness. You'll see why in a minute. But it's the word hesed. So it says, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in Loving kindness. That's how the NHEB translates it. The word is hesed. Now, this word hesed is used so often in the Old Testament, and often it's used in the same verse or the same couple of verses so often that our English translators, when they translate the Bible, will use different words because it would sound too repetitive. And there's a dynamic nature to the word hesed. So you can see, as I'll show you in a minute, uh, it's hard to pin down. And that's the importance of having a kind of an expanded definition to explain something about hesed. This is not on your handout, but I just want you to notice, because I don't know what version of the Bible you all have in front of you. But for instance, hesed, let me give you some examples. From this verse, if I go to the New International Version, the NIV, they translate hesed as love. Now, that's not necessarily wrong for hesed. The problem is there's, a, there's an actual Hebrew word for love, ahav. And so hesed carries something a little bit diff different, and it can be confusing if you just see love. Does that mean the ahav love or the hesed love? And so the NIV, I'm not sure, I think they even changed it just back to love. So the, the English Standard Version, the ESV, has steadfast love. The King James Version says goodness. So they're pulling goodness into that. The NASB has faithfulness. The NASB 1995, so you can see the NASB actually changed it. They said loving kindness. Uh, the New Living Translation has unfailing love. And this is another one I pulled, the Berean Study Bible loving devotion. Now you can see that's all, they're all trying to translate the word hesed, and you can see how it's not easy. They're dancing around. 
you're trying to put into English something that we don't have the words to ultimately to convey. So what I want you to notice, though, is when we look at this word hesed, notice that what goes along with it, steadfast. It's steady and it's fast, like, like holding on to something, fastening yourself to something. There's something about God that's steady and will hold on to you. Uh, a steady holding, unfailing, uh, devotion, right? Devotion has that sense of time involved. You're devoted to something. Faithfulness, that's a, there's more of that, again, that steady commitment that God will not fail. And those are probably more descriptive than simply the word love. And What's so important, last week, the reason we needed to cover a covenant, not only because Exodus is a covenant, but you can't understand hesed unless you understand covenant, because the mechanism of relationship that requires steadfast commitment is a covenant. So if we don't, if we don't fully understand the nature of covenant, and especially that ancient covenant, where both parties have an obligation, and so what this is saying is God has an obligation and he will not give up his obligation on his side of the covenant. He's not going to give up. This is why I call it covenant faithfulness. And the context that we're here in Exodus is a covenant. So in the ancient world, they used the language love and hate. Those are covenant language. Covenant uh, has covenant meaning. To love a covenant is to keep the covenant. You're obeying. I love the covenant. To hate the covenant means you're disobeying the covenant. So like when God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We tend to think, oh, God has an emotion of hate towards Esau. No, no, no. God made a covenant with Jacob, and he's keeping that covenant, but he didn't make a covenant with Esau. So when you look at covenant language... You'd say love and hate. Those aren't the emotions as much as they are as I'm keeping the covenant. Likely confusion between our modern and ancient conceptions of love when we hear that about the covenant. So covenant faithfulness, you're keeping. Will God break his covenant? Does God's character allow him to break his covenant? God says, I'll make a covenant with you guys. I'll save you in the end from the final judgment. And what if he said, nah, I'm not going to do it. No, he can't break his covenant. That's a, the characteristic of God is that he will not violate his own covenant. So covenant faithfulness, there's an element of continuation and of steadfastness. That's what we miss when we just use the word love or loving kindness. It doesn't quite capture the depth of what's going on. So um, God is faithful in covenant relationship. If he makes that covenant, because this is what we're watching happen, right? He makes the covenant, they violate it, and then he has to say, look, I, I won't violate my side of it is, I'm going to make you a great nation. I can't violate that. So that's why understanding covenant that we did last week is so important to understanding about there's a devotion here. It's a devotion to the covenant that we're in with God. And an understanding that God's character doesn't allow him to break the covenant. 
And that we're thankful for. You know, even in Exodus um, verse 20, God says, he uses hesed and then the other word for love. It says, God is hesed. He's faithful in the covenant for those who ahav love him. So when we love God, his return is that he's faithful in the covenant that he made with us. So much deeper. And then this word that's just before it, some of it, I'm not sure what your Bible has, but mine says abundant. Abundant, it's a word rav. It just means great. He's great in hesed. He's not going to violate his covenant. So, okay, you'll have to read those definitions. When you have time, it takes it to a deeper level to help you understand something about God. Now, I'll offer up a few ref, um, comments or reflection on what, we, what we're looking at when we read this. And then next week, we'll, we'll do it again, because I want to look at those words for sin. They help us understand the nature of God's forgiveness. So if we're just going to reflect on this for a minute, one of the things that really stands out is when God goes to tell you about his character, he does not have any adjectives about power. So in the ancient world, as I mentioned, the gods were all about power. That's what, in today, when somebody goes to worship a false god, even though we wouldn't say it's like a formal worship, it's about power. People live and in, in, we live in chaotic existences. The world seems chaotic and we're searching for power. And so What's amazing about this is you get to he's declaring his character and there's nothing about power adjectives, nothing about his holiness, nothing about his glory, nothing about his might, nothing about his perfection. That's what people want to hear about their God. And what it's so cool is he says, no, 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 authentic power, the true power in my cosmos, in my creation is mercy, is grace, is faithfulness, it's forgiveness, it's manifesting goodness in the world. That is true power. So it's amazing to see this. And this is what Jesus demonstrates for us. Jesus demonstrates for us that authentic power is, is found in forgiveness and truth and grace, not in might. And what we want, what the world wants, especially the world, the world wants might and power. Let me show you how strong I am. The thing is, is that doesn't change hearts. And it's those moments of mercy, moments of compassion, or moments of forgiveness that penetrates a human heart in a way that power never will. Right? And we read that great commandment in Exodus uh, 23, if your enemy's ox falls, go help your enemy. And it's that little teeny moment, right? God wants you to have compassion on your enemy. And that, that moment in time that you share humanity, that you could see your enemy's humanity as God sees your enemy's humanity. So this is a really uh, important thing to notice. What's not written, that's the, it's hard to often pick up on what's not written, but this is an important one. Nothing about power. Another one, 
you have the tension that exists, right? That God is merciful and compassionate, but he's also just, right? Sin will be judged. And we'll talk about this next week because even in the New Testament says, God treats you like a son and disciplines you. Why is he disciplining you? Because he wants you to grow. It's, it's actually in pursuit of holiness that God's disciplining you. That's what's supposed to happen is we make mistakes, we learn, we grow, we get back up, we walk forward with God, we, God restores us, we're back in relationship, and that we grow through that uh, discipline. So we need to have that in our lives. But uh, we do find that, that uh, tension here. So if I go back to the, 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 the sentence that I gave you from Donald Gowan in the beginning, and I said, if, if Israel's to have any future with God, any future, how are they going to walk forward in the world if God is not patient and forgiving and merciful and gracious and, you know, slow to anger? You can't walk with God because we're human beings. And so this becomes this amazing pattern that Scripture is going to pick up. And of course, Jesus fulfills this for us. And then it's by God's grace that we're entering into that covenant through Jesus. He's patient and forgiving, even while we're still flailing about. That's what the Bible's telling us. It's, an, it's amazing. And then I'll, I'll finish with this, and I apologize. I didn't put this one on your handout. Uh, there's a book. It's uh, Terence Fretheim. The book is called The Suffering of God. And He's again, he's working in biblical studies, like I mentioned, biblical, or I'm sorry, biblical theology, and looks at the way God does suffer. He doesn't, he suffers when he sees the sin of the world. But this is what Terence Fretheim says. He says about Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he says, look, the crucial importance lies in knowing what kind of God it is. This is what's so important about this disclosure. What kind of God is it that we're following? Right? So the crucial importance lies in knowing what kind of God it is who has been, is, and will be acting. That's what Moses wants to know. And what we find out is that God is faithful and loving and gracious and righteous. And then he says, and hence there's hope for the future. And there's hope in our walk that God doesn't just smite us the next time we you know, that we mess up. But our hope, our hope for the future is based on a covenant that God will save. Right? The hope for the afterlife where evil and injustice is finally judged and there's no longer suffering. It's all based on God's character. The hope, because we know God's character says he will not violate his covenant. That he's faithful to his covenant. That he's loving and gracious and righteous. And therefore, we have hope as we walk in the world that there will be a day when all the injustice is taken care of. Why? Because God promised that. That's the covenant. I apologize I didn't get that on your sheet, but it's a great description of what's happening here as God is disclosing his divine attributes. So, next week, we'll go over a little bit again. And then I'll, I'm going to move down to the forgiveness, because obviously we're part of our relationship with God is through Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. And I want to show you the depth of the of 
the words that are used with sin. And if you have if you have a chance over the course of the next week, read over that uh, handout that I gave you, because the only way to to go deeper on some of those Hebrew words is to describe to kind of get an idea of what they actually mean. So, all right, that's kind of week one introduction to God's divine attributes. <laughs>